Is it illegal for minors to play pinball in South Carolina? Let's go to the bench. Legal news, information, and interviews from Collins & Lacey, a leading South Carolina defense firm for construction, workers' comp, hospitality, retail, trucking, professional liability, mediation, government, and ethics matters. The views expressed by the guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect that of Collins & Lacey, its management, or employees. This is The Legal Bench. And welcome to The Legal Bench. I'm Michael Burney, Director of Business Development for Collins & Lacey Defense Law Firm in Columbia, South Carolina. What is the status of pinball regulation laws in South Carolina, and how do they affect bars and arcades that feature the machines? Collins & Lacey attorney and member of our retail and hospitality team, Andy Smith, has our special guest. Mike, it's been uh, nearly a century since coin-operated pinball machines were first introduced in the 1930s. The history includes use during the Great Depression when there was a concern that adult spending on the games was causing some children to go unfed. Machines were banned in the early 40s and labeled as gambling devices. In more recent times, some politicians have viewed pinball as a, quote, gateway to gambling. Currently, under South Carolina law, it is unlawful for a minor under the age of 18 to play a pinball machine. Now, South Carolina House Bill 5139 would repeal the law forbidding children from playing pinball. This pending legislation would likely be welcomed by our guest today as he's been hosting pinball team play. Josh Rainwater is the owner of Transmission Bar and joins us today on the legal bench to discuss this pending legislation and his current practice of allowing minors to play at his business. Josh, thanks for joining us and let's start uh, with your business. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Thank you for having me. Yeah, Transmission is uh, a full arcade and uh, full-service restaurant and full bar. We have about two dozen classic arcade games, stuff like Pac-Man, Galaga, Skee-Ball. And then we have uh, about nine pinball machines. We are all ages until 7 p.m., which means that we do uh, let kiddos come in and play the pinball machines. We uh, opened just at the start of the pandemic, but we have been doing just fine, thankfully, because people are just as obsessed with this game as we are. Well, that's good. And I can't imagine opening right at the beginning of COVID was an easy time to open up a bar in Columbia, but uh, I'm glad that you're here and glad that you guys are doing well. Um, so have you heard of this law before? We have. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do you know about it? There was a little bit of concern whenever we were looking to open this as to whether or not this law was ever actually enforced. But we weren't able to find any record of it being seen, you know, given its day in court. So we figured it was maybe a stay over from the era of when pinball machines were banned because of their link to gambling. To me, that history is really unique. Um, There aren't very many other forms of entertainment that were so massively wiped out without like a kind of satanic panic, you know, reinforcement behind it. Right. You, you, you mentioned that the machines were a form of entertainment in the depression. They were still awarding prizes. So whenever we think about pinball in the depression, we have to think about a completely different game. Electricity is not introduced into pinball machines until 1934. And so, you know, we've got five years of uh, the depression there where it's a totally different game. There's no flippers. It's just you are using a pool cue to 
push a ball kind of in the same shape that you would think of pinball now. You know, it goes up one side. And then it literally falls kind of like Plinko over pins in the board into different holes that have scoring amounts. And then you would manually add up the points. Oh, I got 400 points or whatever. You'd pick up the ball and you'd take it back to the cashier. You know, you had to, you had to essentially rent the ball from, the, from behind the counter. They were countertop or sold with legs. You could buy them either way. They were about $19 and they were anywhere from a penny to 10 cents to play. And I imagine during uh, the Great Depression, penny and ten cents now might not sound like a lot, but then it's a little bit bigger of an expense. Totally. Um, do you know if, what kind of prizes there were? Yeah, so it was meals, drinks, or if you were of age, cigarettes. <laughs> so the types of things that somebody in the Great Depression would really want to get their hands on. Absolutely. Um, I would assume that the... Uh, the chances of winning were not particularly great, that it was skewed a little bit like a casino. The house always wins. It was very, very hard. Um, the, the game, for all intents and purposes, was much more a form of gambling. The concept of nudging and moving the machine to help the momentum of the ball in your favor came into play a little bit later. Once you um, get the introduction of a spring-based shooter rod, like we know today when you start a pinball machine, you pull back the rod. Once that gets introduced, for some reason, nudging kind of also is on the rise because very quickly, a few years later, you get the introduction of a tilt bobber and a slam tilt switch, which prevents you from moving the game too aggressively. I think even if we had those machines in our arcade today, we would need to make them free because there really is a lot more luck in those uh, style of pin games, um, which is what they were, were referred to. You have people spending money on entertainment during a time where, you know, the Great Depression. The ban did not really start until kind of the early 40s. So after the depression had really kind of ended and the economy was just starting to rebound during the war, you know, Um, because remember, electricity had been introduced at this point. There was a guise of, okay, well, we're going to take these machines and use the copper wiring for the war. But that was absolutely a lie. Mayor LaGuardia in New York confiscated 1,800 machines on the first day of the ban. It was over 11,000 machines over the 30 years that it was banned. Most of them were just dumped into the Hudson River and remained there. So for context, in 2020, there were 350 pinball machines in Manhattan, and he destroyed 11,000. So it truly was like a golden era of an entertainment game that nowadays, it, it, it pales in comparison. It looks flashier and there's a screen, but it's nothing like it was. New games were coming out every week in in what is, there's a 10 year span that's generally considered to be the golden era between 1948 and 1958. And you have a ton of new ideas coming out. And that's so interesting, right? Because that's right in the, the band. That's right when the band kind of gets enacted. LaGuardia gets obsessed with banning them because he sees kids playing them. 
and kids spending you know money that should be spent on what he thinks better things on this entertainment that to him looks like and it is gambling the largest pinball production companies were out of chicago and during this same time in chicago the mob is huge and much more present. And so he becomes convinced that the mob is behind pinball. And so he thinks that they are essentially a racket to steal money from kids. And so that's his main motivation for destroying them and and enacting the ban. In that 30-year ban, you've got the introduction of flippers in the late 40s, but not flippers like we think of them today. They were all over the playfield in random locations. You get the... Um, introduction of solid state and multiplayer, like solid state computing and multiplayer pinball machines within that ban as well. And the reason that the ban was lifted is because there's a, a magazine journalist who was obsessed with pinball. You could still play pinball in the backs of pornography shops or bars that had speakeasies. So there were still avid fans and people who were good at it. And so in 1976, Roger Sharp, he's this 20-something-year-old journalist, he is chosen to kind of be the face of ending the ban. The, The concept that pinball was related to you know the derelict youth had kind of worn off by the by the mid 70s there were other concerns at the time and there were a lot of operators who wanted to make money and the city of new york realized that they could make money too if they taxed it and licensed it and took a a small portion so they they were willing to to end the ban. So Roger Sharp shows up in his day of court essentially to babe Ruth the situation, to call his shot and prove that it is a game. While there are elements of chance, it is a game of skill primarily. But you have to to remember whenever he's in court, he's playing essentially what we think of as a pinball machine today. The flippers are where we know them. There's a back box with a scoring reel. It has pop bumpers and solenoids and, you know, electricity moving through it. That's a far cry from that original style of, of pin game, I guess. Outside of just New York City, a lot of the major cities and states throughout the United States during kind of the 30s and 40s all banned pinball Um When I was researching this, I found uh, the Supreme Court of California in 1974 actually had a case, uh, Cossack versus Los Angeles, to try and overturn the uh, pinball ban in the city of Los Angeles. During that case, the uh, Supreme Court of California, so our third largest state Supreme Court, sat down and watched people play pinball and wrote an entire opinion on it in which they said that these new pinball machines, so not this old pin game, but with the flippers and the electricity and the the score reel. They said, pinball machines equipped with flippers permitting manipulation of the ball by the player are predominantly games of skill. It was this distinction that was important to them because games of skill were able to be licensed while coin-operated games of chance were considered legal gambling. So the Supreme Court of California went with exactly what you're saying, saying these old games were just gambling, just straight up, I'm putting my money into something and letting chance decide what happens with it. Whereas these new games, like uh, what sharp was using 
are more games of skill. You have to have some sort of ability to read where it's going to go and have kind of a basic understanding of how to use these flippers, um, and it was something that you could practice. Every state since the 1970s has overturned its ban on pinball, except for one state, and it happens to be the great state that we both call home, South Carolina. Um, South Carolina Code 63192430 states that it is unlawful for a minor under the age of 18 to play a pinball machine. And I think that the most interesting thing that I came across while researching this is that that law did not come into effect until 2008, which means there are kids learning how to drive right now who are older than a law outlawing pinball for people under the age of 18. It's not a law that was passed as some sort of panic about gambling or the the non-frugal use of money during the Depression. It was passed in 2008. House Bill 5139 was introduced earlier this year to repeal the law forbidding children from playing pinball. The South Carolina House of Representatives voted on the bill and passed it by a vote of 106 to 3. The bill then went to the Senate Judiciary Committee and died there. So that means as of now, pinball is still illegal for people under the age of 18 to play in South Carolina. That leads me to my first question for you. Josh Rainwater, owner of Transmission, how dare you violate the laws of South Carolina? I laugh in the face of the laws of South Carolina. <laughs> no, but we... Um, Really, I, I, I'm interested in when you were looking at opening transmission, what did you discuss? Were there any discussions about this law? Did you, you know, spare it a second thought or was it something that you thought there's no way this will be enforced and just kind of moved on with your day? Yeah, the only concerning part was how recently it had been written into the law. I wasn't able to find whether it was like adapted from a precedent or something like that. When we were researching the arcade, I just cold called pretty much every spot that had a pinball machine that I knew about. A few of them that were had the gift of gab, I asked them about this, and there was never a, a case. There was never a charge. Um, some of them di- di- weren't even aware of it. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm really not sure why or where it came from so late in the game, but it, it wasn't a concern for us. You know, we, we knew we were doing everything else proper in regards to the kitchen and the bar and the games with licensing because DOR does state licensing and then Richland County also has licensing. And then we also have to report the earnings, and so we get taxed as well. So we get hit three times on the on the games, which is unfortunate. No, it wasn't a concern, and I I know it's not a concern for um, some of the other joints in town that have pinball machines too. There's um, a spot down in Five Points named Bang Back Pinball Lounge. Once a month, they host um, a group called the Little Flippers, which is a pinball workshop a pinball class for kids five to 12 years old and it's advertised as such and they do so without any fear the uh, company that hosts and owns little flippers marco specialties out in lexington south carolina they know about the law as well and also have no concern now that i say all of this and we may be fools you know that 
that's entirely possible, right? I mean, we're admitting breaking the law. But if there's not actionable concern and the city can make money on it, it seems like there is a precedent of looking the other way. Exactly. It almost seems as if there's a conflict of interest for the government to, you know, we can enforce this law that's on the books, but if we do, we're going to lose this chunk of revenue, both the county and the state. Well, I know that in uh, 2015, um, Stephen Goldfinch, who at that point was a member of the House of Representatives, uh, introduced House Bill 4535. This bill attempted to repeal some of the most ridiculous and outdated South Carolina laws. Besides the pinball law that was included in this, he also tried to repeal the laws about sending and accepting a challenge to fight, so dueling, seduction under the promise of marriage, adultery, which is still a criminal charge in South Carolina, adventuring in lotteries, despite the fact that at that time the state of South Carolina ran the only legal lottery in the state, unlawful operation of public dancing halls on Sundays, unlawful to work on Sundays, and the prohibited sale of certain items on Sundays, such as blue laws. So that shows you a little bit where his mind was at when he lumped all of these together with the pinball law. And in a story that is going to sound familiar from a few minutes ago, it was referred to the Senate Judiciary Committee and no further action was taken before the session adjourned and the bill died. Therefore, all of these laws were still on the books after 2015. Obviously, it sounds like from you, uh, owners of pinball establishments are treating this law as if it doesn't exist. And honestly, it sounds like the state and county government are also treating it as, as if it doesn't exist. Have you at any point either as the owner of Transmission or just as a citizen done anything or talked to anyone in government about this law? Yeah, so one of my partners at Transmission is very close with Dino Panaris. And so I was able to sit down with him and talk um, about what it would take to overturn this law. And it was kind of through learning the process that it we really just realized it wasn't worth the effort because... Uh, there was the precedent of the case that you mentioned, and there was no enforcement. So it didn't seem like it was really worth the time. If it was being enforced, yeah, absolutely. I, I, we would have pushed it all the way to the end because it's a different game now. It's a silly law. We shifted our focus more towards the licensing side of things because we think that is a slightly prohibitive for establishments to put an arcade game or a pinball machine into their business. You have to have a yearly operator's license and a $250 license per game just from DOR and then stuff from the county as well. And if you, you know, you're trying to convince a local pizza joint to put something in, you know, they're like, how much is it going to cost me? No. The way we do it is we just eat all those costs and we just put the machine in to establishments around town every dollar that goes in. We split it 50-50. Works for them, works for us. But we would be able to do it a lot more if we weren't having to spend money in order to get taxed on the money. You know what right. I mean? It's a lot of upfront cost for a lot, a lot of, of cost. back-end cost. Yeah. And I understand, like, when you think about it in terms of, like, a liquor license, right? Absolutely, I get paying for that. We make a ton of money on liquor. I get it. 
we do not make that much money in the games. Right. And I can imagine liquor license enforcement or just liquor law enforcement in general probably eats up a more substantial portion of the state's money every year than enforcing laws on pinball machines or arcades. I would hope. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Where can we find Transmission Bar? Transmission is at 1712 Main Street, right here in Columbia, South Carolina. We're across the street from the courthouse. We're open six days a week, and we have food until 1 a.m. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us today. Thank you for having me. And for more legal news of interest to South Carolina businesses, join us right here for the next episode of The Legal Bench. You've been listening to The Legal Bench from the South Carolina defense firm Collins & Lacey. Learn more at collinsandlacey.com.